Good evening. It is good to be together, to worship God, and to study God's Word together. If you'd like to be opening to 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter, we'll continue to look at that passage where we looked at several verses at the first half of that this morning, and we'll look at the prayer that was David's reply at the last half of this chapter uh, tonight. We're thankful to hear Joe Parton was telling me that the preteen retreat was a great success uh, this weekend, and we're thankful for all of you that participated in that and led that. I understand there were 22 uh, young people that went and 13 adults, and we're thankful for the, the investment in a wonderful time and spiritual weekend. Phil Wagner asked me to mention to you that, Ray, that Ryan Donahue was baptized, Donahoe was baptized uh, today, and we are thankful for that, and we rejoice with Mike and Sharon. And also, we're excited that the circuit riders, uh, they are driving all the way over to McEwen, and they're leading the worship services tonight, right now, there, and we're thankful for that. And uh, we're also thankful, uh, we're hearing just wonderful uh, reports from the parking, and we're thankful that God has blessed us uh, with a new parking lot earlier this year and now with uh, many more parking spaces for our seniors and also for those handicapped. Uh, I understand that, that we had some back this morning uh, that just had to quit coming for a while uh, because they couldn't uh, walk from where they were having to park. They were on oxygen and, and just couldn't walk that far. And uh, now with our new parking and it marked off uh, better, uh, they're able to do that. And to God be the glory, uh, we want to help each other and we want to serve each other. And I tell you, if you want to show the second greatest commandment every service, one of the greatest things you can do is park the furthest from the building if God has given you good health. And obviously he hasn't given everybody good health and that's why we want to do that. And that way those that, that they need to park closer, uh, they don't drive into the parking lot and realize I can't walk that far this morning or I can't walk that far tonight and they have to just drive back home. And, and it breaks our heart uh, to think that that happens and when we're strong and healthy, we probably don't even think that it does happen, but it does. And so we're thankful that that's better, but we can make that better every day. Every time we gather, most of us here could make that better. And uh, I long, I, I, I don't say this lightly, uh, I have a dream. I have a dream of preaching at a congregation one day where the parking lot fills up from the back to the front. That if you arrive late, there'll be plenty of parking places and they'll be the closest one to the door. To me, that would really be the love of God. To me, that would prove it. People would drive by that church building and say, I have never seen a place like that. That's because Christians worship here. That's, that's why it's like that. I'd love to see that. I hope that we can grow. I hope we can reach that mark of spiritual maturity. But I know we got a ways to go because I've never met a church yet that does it. But I really believe uh, that God would be thrilled uh, to see such sacrifice week after week. When we think of the many, many ways that God blesses us, it's almost hard to imagine, though, experiencing a day like David experienced. We began a study of this this morning. And, and to think that he had that moment where he thought, wow, I have a great idea. What, what I want to do is, is I have this comfortable, beautiful house made of the cedars of Lebanon and, and God, his covenant, his Ark of the Covenant is just in curtains in a tent. And I want something much better for him. And so I've come up with this wonderful and glorious idea and the prophet jumps on board. Nathan, not speaking for God, 
speaking as a friend, says, that's great. Your heart's good. You do it. And even tags on, God will be with you. And God has to come that night and says, I want you to go back to him. And I want you to tell him, the Lord has spoken. And he tells him there the reminder of, hey, you're not, you're not bringing me out of this tent because you're not the one that put me in it. I put myself in here and you have no business bringing me out. That had to be a quiet, quite of a, a sharp wake-up call. And we talked this morning quite a bit about what do you do when God tells you no? And it's interesting, he could have become bitter, he could have thrown up his hands, he could have decided to give up on God, but instead he listens to the rest of what God has to tell him. And what he realizes is that God has a plan that far surpasses just one structure that David wanted to build. That God had a much greater, grander plan. He had a larger plan that would scope the, to the ends of time. And he was inviting David to be a part of that plan. And what I hope you and I can realize is that every time God tells us yes and he tells us no, I would suppose that every time it falls within a greater plan. And how awesome would it be if we can reach a point of maturity and wisdom where even when we pray, we always pray knowing that what we want is we want God's will to be done in the larger plan. The kingdom is far more important than just you or your family. The kingdom is far more important than just my will be done. It's God's will be done. And so it's in this setting that we go back to that powerful story. And, and as a matter of fact, when God revealed to him in, in the first, in the seventh chapter in verse 16, I don't think we got a slide for that. In verse 16, notice he says, in your house, this is 2 Samuel 7, and, and he says in 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Remember we pointed out this morning, that was him, that was God telling David that. Through Nathan, he was telling David that you're going to be a part of a great kingdom and it's going to be your throne and all of the prophets and all of the quotes thereafter would talk about the throne of David, the kingdom of David, the house of David, the city of David. And Jesus Christ was born of the, the throne or the family of David. And that's why David realizes at least to some degree and he says in verse 18, the king David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, who am I? O oh Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Isn't that beautiful humility? God, I'm amazed that you want to use me in this way. I remember when I was just a shepherd boy, and you've brought me this far, and now I hear that you have a much greater plan, and, and you're going to take me further. So what's David's response? The next several verses... He's having a conversation or a prayer, if you will, with God. I'd like for us to drop down and I'd like for us to study beginning at verse 27 tonight. 2 Samuel 7 and 27. 2 Samuel 7 and 27. In this very same setting, David says, For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house, therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. That phrase right there is the reason we're studying this all day today. 
when I read that phrase, it just captured my attention that your servant has found this prayer in his heart. Where do you find your prayers? Isn't it interesting that God did not say, and he very well could have, but he did not say, here's a book of prayers. When you pray to me, just look up in the concordance and you'll find different kinds of prayers. And, and I want you to take these prayers and you go to a book when you pray to me. Or he could have said, I want you to memorize. And I want you to listen to all these eloquent prayers that have been handed down generation after generation. And I, I want you to go to your head. And I want you to memorize prayer. Isn't it awesome that David said, I want to pray to you from my heart. What's in your heart? Do you like who you see when you look into your heart? Please answer that. Does God like what he sees when he looks into your heart? Let's be honest, some of us don't like to do that. It's been said that some men know a thousand other men, but they do not know them on their own selves. Sometimes we don't like to look at the man in the mirror. We don't like to study ourselves over because the deeper we look inside ourselves, the less we like what we see. You know the poem. You've heard it. It's been read how many times since 1934? I'm not saying every line of this poem is, it makes the point, but I would like to share with this poem again that you have heard over and over. Peter Dale Wimbro Jr. says, when you get all you want and you struggle for pelf, and the world makes you king for a day, then go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your mother, your father, or your wife whose judgment upon you must pass, but the man whose verdict counts the most in your life as the one start staring back from the glass. He's the fellow to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you right to the end. And you've passed your most difficult test if the man in the glass is your friend. You may be like Jack Horner or Chisel of Plum and think you're a wonderful guy, but the man in the glass says you're only a bum if you can't look him straight in the eye. You can fool the whole world down the highway of years and take pats on the back as you pass, but your final reward will be heartache and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. You and I know David wasn't a perfect man, but I tell you what, David could look into his heart and he could see a good man. He could look into the glass and he could look an eye, man, and a man eye to eye that was a good man. I would love to hear the prayers of David and many of us love to read those as we read through the book of Psalms. Why? Because we see a man whose heart was pure. Hold your finger here and turn over just a moment to Psalms, the 19th chapter. In Psalm, the 19th chapter, I'd like for you to notice perhaps one reason why David had a heart that was so good was because that he believed such words as Psalm 19 and verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And if you back up, and we don't have slides for this, but if you back up 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, it's words like this that he's closing out this chapter by saying, 
that he wants the meditation of his heart to be upon these. And it's things like this. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteousness altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. You see what David is saying? He's talking about the law of God and he sees it as something that's changed his soul, that's made him wise, that makes his heart rejoice, that's given enlightenment to his eyes and makes him endure forever. And it's with all of those things on his mind that he says again there in 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. How different would our life be if we spent time in deep meditation? If we spent time thinking about what the Word of God says and then look deep within us and say, do I look like the Word of God I just read? Is it converting my soul? Is it changing my heart where I rejoice when I read the Word of God? Are we sorry for who we are when we read the Word of God? Matthew, the sixth chapter, if we struggle to say, really, who are we? You know, there would be some that would say, I really don't know how to know what my heart is set upon. Well, this is another way our heart can be set. Instead of it being set upon God and upon the teachings of God and the hope of God, Jesus says, Matthew 6 and 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart? If you struggle to know where your heart is, get out your checkbook, your debit card, your credit card statement. Get out your portfolio. Get out your calendar. Get out your schedule. Those things reveal where your heart is. Where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. David said, I want to offer you a prayer from my heart. How many of us would offer, if we were saying something from our heart, it'd be all about sports. It'd be all about finances. It'd be all about some hobby that we have. It'd be all about some kind of earthly dream. It's not that there may not be a place for those things in our life. But let's hope, let's pray, let's build a life where our heart is set upon God. And when we do that, that's a marvelous resource out of which to pray. We can pray out of our heart. So what did he pray? I'd like for you to notice here this simple prayer in 28 and 29. Not that it's not powerful, it's just simple. Look in 28. He recognized God as true and faithful. And now, O oh Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this goodness to 
your servant. Isn't that wonderful? He acknowledges God, and as he acknowledges God, some of the scholars would write and say that where he says, you are God, that in the Hebrew, that would be the same way of us saying in English. It'd be like us saying, you are the one and true God. He's holding him up and he's acknowledging him as supreme, the only God. But then if he is the only and true or genuine God, his words are also true. And isn't it interesting that his words, note that words are true. And when Jesus Christ came to this earth, God came to earth and took on flesh. John, the first chapter, he's introduced to us as the word. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And remember it says he's full of grace and of truth. God became flesh, full of truth, so much so that he's called the word. And then in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. And so here David is praying and he is recognizing who God is. He's the one true God. His words are true and his promises, he refers there, his promises are faithful. Listen, you may have individuals in your life that are trustworthy, but as trustworthy as the individuals around you are, they still will let you down. There are individuals that were with us a year ago that are not with us today. And the one reason they're not with us today is they felt like as a church family, we let them down. And we probably did. It doesn't matter how good the people around you are. They will let you down. If you want to talk about faithfulness, never once failing to keep their promise never once failing to uphold a responsibility that they have sharing in a relationship with you, never once speaking something and it not being true, even if it were by accident, it will never happen. Friends, that won't happen with anybody else except God. We pray to an almighty God who we can say, he is the only God. He is true. His words are true. His promises are true. He will not break a promise. That's who we pray to. And so David acknowledges the power of God and the perfection of God, his truth and his faithfulness. And then he talks about himself wanting a blessing. Remember we studied last week that we go to God wanting a blessing. But notice why David wanted this blessing. Notice the request of God to bless us as we're still there in 2 Samuel 7, but look at verse 29. The very next verse. Now therefore, let it please you. This is David praying to God. Let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. Is David being selfish? Is he... Is he does he have some kind of underlying thread of arrogance where, God, I want you to bless me and I want you to bless my house so that we'll stand up higher and greater than all others? No, when we read this whole chapter, it becomes very clear that David is asking for the blessings of God because David is starting in, to some measure comprehend that God has invited him in to be a part of a greater plan. First, David began this chapter by saying, I just want to build a temple for you. And, and it ends up, God says, 
you're not going to build me a house. God says, I'm going to build you a house and it's going to be an everlasting house. You're going to have an everlasting kingdom. It's going to be David's kingdom. And this is starting, at least in some measure, to dawn on David. And so David says, I need you to bless me. You remember Jabez's prayer? Let me read that to you just real quickly. And if you want, it's First Chronicles, the fourth chapter in verse 10. And you know, he says something very similar when Jabez called on the God of Israel saying, this is First Chronicles 4 and 10. He says, oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be upon me and that you would keep me from evil, that I may cause no pain. A beautiful, simple four-part prayer. Now, the second part was, he says, I want you to enlarge my territory. In other words, it's the idea that he realized that if he could have greater influence, he could do greater things for God, but he realized he could not have greater influence unless God blessed him. David is recognizing that God has a plan for him and his family that's far greater than what David ever realized previously. And so now what does David do? He prays and addresses the one true God where all of his words are true, his promises are true. And the first thing that he says here at this point of the prayer is he says, bless me and my family. Why? Because we have a huge responsibility in your kingdom and we want to do good and we recognize we can't do good unless we're blessed. Right now, if God blessed your sphere of influence, who could you touch over the next week, over the next month, if he made your influence stronger? If he helped you to become wiser? If he enlightened your eyes so that you could see people the way he sees people? If he could help you to have an understanding about really our purpose on this earth, we say we're disciples. What do disciples do? Disciples make disciples. What if we could gain that kind of understanding? Wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all be able to say, Lord, if you will bless me, I want to use whatever blessings you give me in the kingdom. Whatever resources, whatever opportunities, whatever time, whatever health and energy, bless me, Lord, so that I can be about the kingdom. And third, I'd like for you to see this last point. He also prayed that the Lord would preserve him. We're still there in verse 29, and I'm gonna pick up right there after he said to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you, for you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessings, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. David recognized that he was a part of something that was so much bigger than just the earthly. David recognized that as he prayed to a heavenly God. David recognized that as he asked for blessings, not so he could do more earthly things, but he asked for blessings so that he could do more in the spiritual kingdom. And now he asks for God to preserve him because he recognizes. David is not saying a prayer that is saying, Lord, will you make it so that I live on this earth forever? That's not the kind of endurance that David is asking for here. David is looking into the scope of eternity and he's saying, Lord, I want to live with you forever. Preserve me, help my focus, help my faith, help my life to go on into eternity. What a prayer. What if that's our daily prayer for us and our family? 
to acknowledge God, ask his blessings upon us that we could bless the kingdom and to preserve us into eternity. I hope that you have some kind of formula like that that you fervently pray. It is amazing when we truly see ourselves as partners with God. God is still as powerful and as active and as faithful as he was on the day of Pentecost. The day 3,000 souls came to say, I want to be saved. I want Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I want to be baptized for the remission of my sins. God is not any less God than what he was on that day. He's not any less powerful. But what he had on that day was that he had a small group of disciples that had set their eyes on his mission. And on that day, what we saw in, in looking back in scriptures is we see the power of God in the lives of people. And when God's people, his disciples, coupled with his work, amazing things can happen. I don't believe we grasp it all the time. But I believe sometimes God gives us snapshots to say, I just want to help you refocus again. I'd like to close this lesson by telling you a story that on a few Wednesday nights I've shared portions of this story, but now this past week has been a touching and a powerful way in the life of my family and several others. Many of you for several weeks have prayed for Nan Tokunaga. Now in the bulletin, there was a different last name. And I'll just be honest with you, I don't know exactly how that all works, okay? But Nan grew up in China, the daughter of a dentist. Her mother was a dentist. Her father was a doctor extremely intelligent people. As a young mother and a young woman, she decided she didn't want to go into medicine like her, some of her siblings did and her parents did. She decided to go in business. She moved to Japan. She learned the Japanese language in 18 months, enrolled in school, and graduated the very first student in her class in an MBA study. After a period of a short time, she grew bored with business and she did want to do something that would help people and she was visiting America. And Dr. Strauss was the head of Vanderbilt's hospital, children's hospital here in Nashville and he met her. And he was so impressed with her intellect that he hired her to be on his research team to study SIDS. And keep in mind, she doesn't even have a degree in science, biology, or medicine. But that's how smart she was. She's the only one he's ever hired that did not have a degree in that area. The studies she helped reveal has changed children's lives around the world. The test that she is now able 
to perform, or her lab is now able to perform. It is the only lab in all of the world that can predict who would be predisposed for their children to have SIDS and to do something about it to prevent it. When she came to America, of course, she had to begin to learn English. And while she was studying DNA at her work, she began to look at the intricate design of DNA. And this brilliant mind began to say to herself, this cannot come from evolution. And so while she's trying to figure out, coming from her background, not knowing anything about God, trying to figure out who could do something like this, she also signs up to do friend speak at Brentwood Hills Church of Christ so that she can learn English. She goes in there to learn English and she starts reading from the truth, the word of God, the one true God's word. And she goes back to her lab and she goes back to read and she goes to her lab and she begins to think, there's something to this. So the lady that was teaching her English invited her to see if she would want to come to church. And she said, I would. She walked into the foyer of Brentwood Hills Church of Christ just slightly late the first time she walked in and the song was being sung, the battle belongs to the Lord. She paused and she listened. And she began to double over and cry. An elder went over and put his arms around her and helped her find a seat. And the woman that she'd been studying with held her and she cried almost uncontrollably controllably for a while. Later, she was asked, why were you crying? And she said, all my life, I've been taught that you have to be strong and you have to find the power within you to force your way through this world. And she said, when I came in and I heard the words about the God of this church is a God that will go to battle for you, I am so tired of carrying my burdens and my struggles that those were tears of joy to think that there was someone who would carry my burdens for me. She began to study diligently the word of God and nine years ago, last Saturday, she was baptized into Christ. She was so excited to learn about Christ, she just couldn't study enough. And keep in mind, she's brilliant. So she began to soak in the understanding of an almighty God and his church and the scriptures. And so she began talking to her son, Yuji. And that's the next slide. And, and he lives in Japan. And, and so four years later, he's baptized into Christ. The entire team is transferred to Cincinnati. And while Nan is living in Cincinnati, that's the research team, she gets cancer. And while she's going through treatments, her brother that's a medical doctor says, I'm going to come over and stay with you for several months during treatments. And when he arrives, he says, Nan, don't tell me about your God. And she says, okay. Okay. But he notices the life she lives. And the 
Christians that came over from the little small church in Cincinnati to bring food and to just show love. And one day he said to her, I want to know about your God. And she said, well, now that I'm sick, I can't go to my church, but I worship every Sunday with the Mount Juliet Church of Christ online. Do you want to worship with me Sunday? And he said, I do. And for months, they sat and worshiped with us. And he started asking for the PowerPoint slides of the sermons and for other material that he could read. And when he went back to China, within a few weeks, he emailed back and he said, can you come baptize me and my wife? We want to be Christians. We found a missionary in an underground church that was able to baptize them. But in the meantime, they had already converted their husband and wife neighbors. And so four were baptized. Now what I haven't told you, or at least it's been implied, but you couldn't talk to Nan without hearing about Jesus. Her great concern in life was to make sure that people were reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. She wanted China to know her God. Her goal was to begin translating materials and taking trips back just to do mission work. The preacher there came by just not long before she died. And he took his Bible in because he knew what Nan would want. And he says, do you have anything in particular that you'd like for me to read for you? She said, yes. I want those verses about disciples. He looked. That's not exactly what you would think someone that is dying would ask for. And she said, you know, the verses in Matthew about making disciples. And he opened up to Matthew 28. And he read the words of our Lord. He read the words that all power and all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The Chinese that are worshiping underground, the Japanese, those in Ukraine, those in Latin America, those that are right next to your house right now tonight, those co-workers with you tomorrow, those people in your school, go into all nations. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even into the end of the age. 
in her short Christian life, she has brought people to Christ on several continents. And she has so many others that are this close. She left orders with other Christians of who to continue to encourage and who to continue to reach out. If you were dying right now, what would be your instruction? Who are you caring about? Who are you leading to the Lord? Who are you praying about every day? Friends, we don't need to pray, Lord, bless me indeed, if we're not doing kingdom work. Because all we're going to do is use the blessings in a selfish, wasteful way. Listen, discipleship is about making disciples. There's coming a day when we're going to stand at the end of time and nothing else is going to matter. Except are you a disciple? Are you a child of God? Nothing is going to matter. Nothing. Your work, your school, your hobbies, whether you're popular or not, whether you're skilled or not, nothing. All that's going to matter is your soul and the souls of the people around you. And I mean this. I fervently thank God that he allowed Nan to cross my path because she helped me see a little clearer the work of God in 2012. Souls are dying every day around this world that have never heard the story of Jesus. And that just shouldn't be. David had an amazing day. He was told that he was going to be a part of the great kingdom. And he said, God, I want to share with you a prayer from my heart. And he praised God for how great he was. But then he asked blessings from God so that he could be a part of the work in an effective way. Then he asked for God to preserve him and his family. Tonight, let's do our part. Let's ask for God's blessings and let's put them to work in his kingdom. And let's make sure that over the next few weeks and months that we're seeing individuals grow closer to God. Not because of us alone, but because we're working in partnership with God. Tonight, is there anything that we can do to encourage you? If your soul isn't right with God, nothing else matters. You've got to get it right. There's coming a day where more than anything, you'll want that right. And God's grace offers it offers a way for us to make our wrongs right by His grace, by His mercy, and by His love and the blood of His Son. If you are ready to be immersed into Christ, don't wait. Don't put it off. But begin your place in the Lord's kingdom tonight. 
Maybe you've begun that journey and along the way you've lost the way and you want to come back. Come back tonight. Come back tonight. There's a heavenly father that loves you and his arms are open. There's a church family around you that loves you. And we want to encourage you in every way that we can.